WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Jameer Dumok describes the first part of his life as a result of the school-to-prison pipeline. Growing up in Jacksonville, he struggled in school between a diagnosed but unaddressed learning disability and a culturally unaware system that relegated him to unhelpful programs repeatedly suspended him and sent him to juvenile detention centers, he, unsurprisingly, eventually found himself in prison. Convicted of three felonies, Jameer Damok decided, while sitting on a cold steel bench in his cell, he would do whatever it took to learn, grow, and become the kind of man he wanted to be. He earned his bachelor's degree in criminology at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and he now works in reentry and recovery with the local nonprofit Coastal Horizons. He joins me now. Jameer Jamok, welcome back to Coastline. Thank you for having me, Rachel. It's definitely a pleasure. It's really good to have you with us after all this time. I want to go back to your childhood since that was so instrumental in kind of laying out the first part of your life as an adult. You have said that what shaped your life boiled down to different forms of feeling like adults just didn't care what happened to you. Yes, ma'am. How did that show up for you? Like as it when you're looking through the child's eyes, Jameer's eyes as a child, what how did what happened to you that made you think adults don't care? Um, I think initially, um, you know, being exposed to uh, a family dynamic, first and foremost, um, in regards to, like, my mother's side of the family, um, they were kind of absent in my upbringing, and the interactions and encounters that I did have with them early on um were typically, you know, geared around, you know, undertones of racism. and um, Your own family. Yeah, well, I lose, I, I utilize that term loosely with them because I don't really have a, a relationship um, with my mother's side of the family. Um, and just to put some context to that, you know, my father is African-American, my mother is, is white, um, and her family... Um, chose to ostracize her and um, basically, you know, put her in a position where she had to make a decision between um, continuing um, her relationship with them or choosing to to first and foremost have her child. Um, They were trying to pressure her to have an abortion, which she chose not to. Um, And then secondly, uh, you know, basically give me up, which she also chose not to do after she had me. So the very limited interactions that I had with them was geared around um, hatred and bias. And that was kind of some of my first exposures to um, what should have been my support system or my system of socialization. And because I didn't have them, you know, in my life, uh, you know, I gravitated to uh, the other um, family support systems that I had, and um, 
you know, there there was people in my life um, who did step in to fill that void. Um, but unfortunately, because of my father's absence in my life, um, it, it kind of constricted us to a situation where I was placed into poverty, you know, at an early age. And while in poverty, um, I really didn't have um, that type of, of camaraderie um, or that type of support system that I needed to really thrive and, and to be socialized in a way where I felt like people really cared about me. So you, um, It was serious poverty. I mean, your mom was struggling to raise you on her own. Yes. And, and so you've said that there were times you may not have eaten for a couple of days. Absolutely. And you're showing up at school. Absolutely. Um, my mother raised me on um, what was known then as an AFDC check. Some refer to it as a welfare check. Um, but basically, you know, she raised me off $236 a month. And um, similar to other people that are in, in that type of situation, there's always like this fine line between um, being, you know, re- regulated to the security uh, of, of the situation and the uncertainty of whether or not you can try to do more to to lift yourself out of that situation. For example, you know, my mother um, wanted to work. She wanted to, uh, you know, better herself and put herself in a more stable economic situation that would lend to us, you know, being able to get out of poverty. However, because of some of the rules um, in terms of being eligible for benefits, there was a glass ceiling that she couldn't exceed. So now she always had to feel like, you know, should I you know, abandon the security of this situation and being able to feed my child, even if it's off limited um, resources, or should I go try to take a job um, that probably won't pay a livable wage? And if for whatever reason that doesn't work out, um, whether it be a health-related situation or discretion of the employer, whatever the case is, I have to reapply for my benefits, get back on the waiting list, wait two years. Um, so basically, you know, we, you know, I eat boiler bag rice some nights. Um, I will say that I grew up in in a neighborhood, um, Dewdrop, in Jacksonville, North Carolina, where it was more of a, a village type of environment. So the times that I couldn't eat, you know, um, the big mama of my hood, um, Miss Sister or um, Miss Naomi, you know, these are my elders and neighbors in the neighborhood. They always stepped up and made sure um, that I could kind of supplement um, those nights. But there were there were plenty of nights where we didn't have enough to eat. Um, yeah. But and we then- did the best we could. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so you'd show up at school sometimes with a gurgling stomach. And you you said, was it a second grade teacher who you felt she saw you? Yes. And she saw the need and she would address that need first. Yes, I think. And this is and this is no knock on teachers in general, because I do believe in the point of of the message that I hope to convey is that how important teachers are. Um, they are an essential asset um, to the upbringing of our children and the foundation of our community because you spend more time 
typically with your teachers than you do with your parents and your family or even the people, you know, in your community. Um, and when I went to school in second grade, um, I had a teacher by the name of Miss Brooks who happened to be a teacher of color. And this particular teacher, um, she had a, a, a certain level of cultural competence. Um, and she just had a true passion and a compassion for her students. So she was able to identify things that I was battling or challenges or barriers that might have been um, preventing me from being my best. And she would step in and um, she would take time to place individualized attention um, on those things. And, you know, when I was in her class, I felt loved. I felt supported. Um, She kind of fulfilled that need in my life that I felt like I wasn't received with a, you know, getting from an absent father or that, uh, you know, the different dynamics in, in my family. Um, you you can't sit there and pay attention to a lesson, a second grade math lesson, <laughs> if you're hungry or you didn't get much sleep last night. And, and you said she would she would meet whatever need it was. And yeah. sometimes it was as simple as just getting you something to eat. Absolutely. So there, there was plenty of days that, you know, she would bring me, you know, snacks. She would bring me meals. And I'm, I don't know what the policies are based around all that, but I'm pretty sure she kind of colored outside the lines. Um, and then there was things like really catering to my particular learning style. She didn't put like a a blanket approach on me. Um, she knew that I really gravitated toward the arts. So like um, my mother instilled literacy in me at a very very young age to the point where, when most kids my age were eating, I mean reading like Green Eggs and Ham and Dr. Seuss. You know my mother had me reading civil rights books. She had me reading um, books on the Holocaust, Holocaust. Like one of my favorite was Children of the Flames. Um, so she knew that about me. She knew that I love literacy. She knew that I love art. She knew that I love music. She knew that I love poetry. And because of that, when there was, uh, specific parts of the curriculum that I couldn't grasp, she would figure out innovative and creative ways to make the curriculum geared towards those things that I was interested in. And that did a world for me. Like I was pub- um, publishing poetry in the second grade, I was winning, um, you know, uh, music talent shows. I was making straight A's. I was thriving as a child. Um, but then it all changed. Yeah. So you said that this teacher was a woman of color and passionate and sensitive and willing to go above and beyond for, for you. Absolutely. And then you had some white teachers who weren't as culturally sensitive? Is that a euphemism for just saying that That's you a experience? Way to say it. <laughs> yeah. How would you say it? Let me ask you that. Well, I mean, uh, I had some teachers who were um, inherently racist. Yeah. And how did that show up? Like, when did? And I guess we'll have to answer that when we come back from this break. You're listening to Coastline. Jameer Jamok is my guest today. When we come back from this break, what he faced in school and how he thinks about surviving recidivism. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilberg for Coastline. 
listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Jameer Jamok says he turned from a life behind bars to helping other people move into productive lives. And he was able to do that because other people reached out to him with love and a genuine desire to see him succeed. He now works for Coastal Horizons, doing what he describes as reentry and recovery work. And Jameer, just before we went to break, you, you talked about Miss Brooks in the second grade who took good care of you and kind of stepped in and, and filled those gaps in your life and showed you how smart you are and how creative you are and what was possible for you. You were doing really well. And then you went into third grade. Yes. And you had a white teacher. And not because she was white. It's she? I'm a, is it fair? Was this a woman? It was. Okay. And there wasn't the same cultural competency. You were you were now facing some racism as a child. Yeah, I mean, to my understanding, um, this particular teacher um, had a different upbringing, life experience. Um, probably had never worked in an urban setting before, so she. I don't want to give her an excuse, but she probably wasn't too familiar with some of the challenges that we face in um, in an urban setting. And because of that, you know, I think that she had a lot of stereotypes that she associated with her students, um, especially the ones of color, who she couldn't identify with. Um, and that was pretty obvious to me early on, and I couldn't really grasp it or understand it at first. It was hard for me to kind of process because although – like in my past past and my um you know there was the early stages that I mentioned to you before when I went when we were homeless and I went to stay with uh my mother's side of the family right was um, this arkansas in arkansas yeah so this was a, a and they were they were nightmares oh, they, they did were, horrific were, things to yeah, you yeah they uh one particular occasion my my mother's nephew uh and some friends tied me to a chain leak fence, pastor fence, and uh, you know, threw stuff at me and uh told me that, you know, the uh the buzzards were gonna eat me because they like inward meat. And um, and you you were how old at this point? About four Five, okay, so four, you're five, barely out of toddlerhood. You're a little, little boy. Yeah, I think I was in like pre something rather. Um, but that, you know, that had an everlasting effect on me in terms of my um, introduction to white people. Uh, so I was always kind of like leery of them based off of that experience. And I never saw myself within their culture because their culture was 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 something that I associated with uh with hatred and racism. So with that being said, you know, when you fast forward that situation like for instance when I was in school down there, they wouldn't even allow me to take pictures with the rest of the, the class and the school because I was the only uh one of two people of color in the class and this is in Springdale, Arkansas, which is anybody knows historically is notoriously known for being a sundown town and I'll let y'all go back and Google exactly what that means. But um anyway, fast forward into third grade situation, 
there was already like a barrier and a reservation there because I didn't, I didn't, I didn't trust the teacher. Why would you? Yeah, and then she didn't really give me any reason to. So, one of the things that she started doing early on was um, being very verbally belligerent and very um, accusatory uh, of me not taking the class seriously. Um, and then she wouldn't necessarily um, cater to my uh, needs the way Ms. Brooks did, so it made me a little bit restless. Um, so I moved around a lot, like as far as in the classroom physically, um, just trying to stay busy. And then she started to make um, informal reports to the school social worker and to the administrative office that I was um, disruptive and combative and things of that nature. But they had no idea. Again, I'm coming in, I'm hungry. You know, my mother is um, in a lot, of, a lot of circumstances being subjected to abusive relationships. I'm witnessing domestic violence. Um, Your mom is suffering too. Yes. And, and, and within, and that's, I've seen that a lot, you know, and I, I can't do nothing because I'm not old enough, so I can't protect my mother. So there's the burden of that. You know, then there's also obviously the, the fact that the lights are getting cut off. You know, we're having to, you know, use kerosene heaters and boil hot dogs and eggs in the court and the kerosene heater in order to eat. You know, there's other things that's going on, not just, not necessarily just in my community, like my immediate community, but in the community as a whole, um, you know, that are um, conducive to poverty, where there's drugs and things of that nature, crime. It's so, a way out, right? Right. I mean, that's how it's seen. Yeah, but I, and I'm observing it all through the lens as a child, and then I'm carrying, you know, those those burdens and trying to figure all that out while I'm going to school. And then my teacher is telling me that, you know, you'll never amount to nothing because you come from this particular neighborhood. You'll never amount to nothing because... So a teacher actually told you... Oh, absolutely. ...that you didn't have any potential. She wasn't the first, and, and she and she probably won't be the last. And and so there's still this Jameer inside who knows that he's smart and knows that he's creative and special. It is, but, um, you know, as I got older and started studying, you know, sociology and social science and psychology and things of that nature, I came familiar with, you know, the terminology of self-fulfilling prophecies. And I didn't realize at the time as a child that I was having self-fulfilling prophecies placed upon me. And not just, and, and, and not just by my teacher, but also by other people in the community who seen my immaturity as a child trying to figure all this stuff going out, you know, going on around me and trying to figure it all out, you know, they automatically, you know, assumed that I was intentionally trying to be deviant. Um, and that really wasn't what it was. I was just trying to survive. Right. And you're a child. You're still a child. A kid. You're yeah. I'm a kid. I haven't even developed cognitively, you know, in a position to be emotionally responsible to have the appropriate response to the things that I'm going through. So that that teacher, she uh, she would her as well as the principal and the vice principal would um, 
intentionally sabotaged my days and put me in a situation where I had to come in direct contact with um, corporal punishment. So they would, would hit you. Yes, I would. I would get. I would get paddlings every almost seemed like every day I was at school. Was this public school? Yeah. And I remember one time, one of my, one of my uh, uh, assistant principals, she called my mother in, and my mother heard them talking bad about her um, while she was in the lobby. And then by the time we got in there, the um, when the, the teacher basically gave her an ultimatum and said, either let us punish him or we're going to expel him from the school. Now, this is elementary school. And... She paddled me so hard that all of the papers on her desk flew off the desk. And my mother is sitting there cringing and crying because she feels helpless because she knows that if I'm expelled from the school at this age, especially with them had already placing a um a diagnosis of BEH, which is, is behaviorally emotionally handicapped, and the other diagnosis that they had, you know, put on me on paper, she knew that the combination of that with me being expelled from school would ultimately lead to social service intervention and could potentially put her in a situation where she could lose custody because she would look like an unfit parent or a parent parent that was neglecting my well-being because in their minds um, I wasn't capable of functioning within a mainstream environment, which is why they placed me in that lady's class and another lady's class um, and learning disability classes, LD classes. We used to call them like the bad classes, special classes. And I stayed in those classes from third grade all the way until sixth grade. So we're talking about, you know, all the quote-unquote bad kids in one class who have all the quote-unquote behavioral problems and issues being secluded from the school, secluded from the mainstream activities, and then someone such as myself being given the equivalent of crossroad, I mean crossword puzzles and um and um tic toe. Sit still. So it was just like keep you out of the way so that you're not bothering the other kids in school. Just keep you occupied. They don't care at this point. That's right. And my rebuttal to that was okay Everywhere I go, somebody says, that bad little JR, because that's what they called me when I was a kid. That bad little JR, he's terrible, he's this, he's that. You know, I'm going to school, they saying he crazy. You crazy, you slow, you whatever. So I'm like, all right. So eventually, you know, I took on the identity of those self-fulfilling prophecies and decided, well, if I'm going to be crazy, if I'm going to be bad, I'm going to be the baddest, craziest child that you know. And from there, you know, that segue into me intentionally being uh, rebellious and acting out and feeling like I had some power in my situation, which only eventually led me to being involved with resource officers and the juvenile justice system and then giving up on the type of support that I felt like I should have been getting in school, and I started seeking that in the streets. Yeah, and you you said... Many times, I mean, you've said it to me and to other people that what some people call a gang problem is really a poverty problem. Absolutely. Do you still believe that? I still believe that. Yeah. And so you got into what? What did you first get arrested for? (laughs) 
I think the and how old were you? It's funny. Funny enough, uh, the first I think the first time I got arrested, there was there was like little situations where you know I was stealing out the store and you know little stuff like that, kitty stuff. Um, but the the first time that I ever remember actually getting charged with something was actually a act of vengeance towards the school because um, I was going through the things I was going through. And I went back to the school with a partner of mine, broke in some school buses, um, took the fire extinguisher off the school bus, and then broke into the school and started vandalizing the school out of out of an act of vengeance. Cause what else could I do? You know, I was upset. I was angry. I felt like I was being, um, you know, being targeted. So my natural response was to lash out, and that's the only way I could. And that introduced me to the juvenile justice system, and it was kind of a downward spiral um, from there. You have uh, three felonies. I do on your record. What are what are? Do you mind telling us nah, what they're for? Absolutely not. Um, so I, my first felony was um, breaking and entering, if I'm not mistaken. So far back, I'm I'm actually creeping up on my anniversary of 20 years removed from any um, convictions and, and legal troubles That's a big for the deal. most part. Yeah. Yes, and just for those who are just joining us, the whole reason that we're talking about this is because it's such a turnaround story and because you, I mean, not only do you give us a window into what some kids might be experiencing that we don't understand. Right. But you're also doing this reentry and recovery work to help adults, right? right. Who are co- and also some kids, some yes, teenagers, right? Absolutely. Who are coming back in into a new, hopefully, pathway. And, sure, indeed. And I think it's important to add context to that too, because as a person who is actively doing what I coined as surviving recidivism, a lot of times, even now with all of the progress and quote-unquote success that I've generated, um, I still face the same barriers and the same stigma that a person fresh out who may or may not have been actively um, involved in the justice system. Like, for instance, if I have to go get a, like, I just applied for graduate school. And Congratulations. I, thank you. I got accepted. Congratulations. What what are you studying? I'm um integrative uh integrated marketing and communications. Okay. Um so applying for that. So you applying have... for that even now and beforehand was a complicated process as many um individuals uh, recidivism survivors face um because they you know they uh campus safety policies and things of that nature that will make you have to clear security boards and things of that nature. Your application will be flagged, and a lot of times they won't let you in, especially to predominantly white institutions. Um, and even even some historically black institutions. Um, and I understand it to a degree because, you know, you have to put people's safety on um, people send their kids to college, want them to be safe. But there there isn't a very intentional um, vetting process in terms of that, of looking at the holistic application versus just looking at the fact that a person has charges. So I say all that to say, like, whether it's if I right now I could live somewhere for 10 years and pay my rent on time every time um, and uh, 
hopefully somebody gave me that opportunity and looked past that and looked at, you know, the fact that I've done all these positive things. Um, but uh, uh, typically that's not the case. So when I say, for instance, something happens and I have to move out of that house, um, say that the the landlord wants to uh, renovate it and rent it out to somebody at a higher cost than I can afford. Um, and this is hypothetical, but I'm, I've been through these situations. So they come in and then they say, okay, you can't live here no more. You got 30 days to figure out your next move. Um, so now when I go apply for another house, I got to go back all the way through the same situation of uncertainty on whether or not they're going to you know, allow me to rent there. And it's those type of, you know, that agony of uncertainty in all of those situations, whether it's going to apply for another job. People know me in the community. They know the things that I've contributed to the community. Um, I have the credentials and the education and things of that nature. But if I go decide, if I lose my job today and I got to go somewhere else, I got to go through the same exact process. And on top of that, I got people asking me questions to fill out an explanation letter where they want me to go all the way back to the time I was 16 years old and explain word for word, play by play, exactly everything that happened the day I got convicted or charged. It's complicated because I, I hear you say you can understand in a campus situation, parents are sending their kids often out of the house for the first time right. in some of these situations, and they, they want them to be safe. On the other hand, you're in a circumstance where you're being forced to revisit things that happened decades ago. And a lot of it is is, is re-traumatizing because I already, I'm already trying to pull away from, you know, that, that, that past, but every time that I'm faced with new stigma, it re-traumatizes me, and you know, for some people that you know, that's why the book that I got coming out, "Remain Resilient: um, Seven Steps for Surviving Recidivism," talks a lot about um, the resilient mindset, because there is a certain level of resilience that you have to um, generate, uh, especially emotional resilience, um, to be able to stomach those type of situations and not feel like. Um, I'm tired of people penalizing me for my past. I paid my debt to society. Nobody still don't want to give me a job. Nobody still don't want to give me somewhere to stay. And then making you push the panic button and feel like, listen, I got to go do what I got to do. I've been experiencing that type of emotional response even since a child with the self-fulfilling prophecies where people telling me I'm not good enough, I don't belong, I'm not, you know, I'm not adequate, I'm not intelligent, I'm not whatever. So I'm like, okay, in instead of uh, ignorance, I'll show you, in uh, instead of uh, intelligence, I'll show you ignorance. You're listening to Coastline. Jameer Jamok is my guest today. After this short break, more on his hopes for the future how other people can make a difference, and maybe we'll unpack some of those steps to remaining resilient. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.
are listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Jameer Jamok had launched a career by 2015 as program manager for Hometown Hires. All stories, of course, involve twists, turns, setbacks, wins. Jameer's story has all of those elements, like every human story does. And today, he works in reentry and recovery work for the local nonprofit Coastal Horizons. Just before we went to break, Jameer, you were talking about how having felonies on your record creates barriers to things that other people think of as a simple application to rent an apartment or to get into graduate school. And each time you fill out one of those applications, then you have to go through and explain and essentially relive what led to those convictions and your time back in that life. And you you use the term re-traumatizing. You said it's re-traumatizing for you. Is there any element of re-traumatization, if that's a word, <laughs> when, <is> now. <laughs> <laughs> when you and I talk about it, when right. you tell your story, is how does that affect you? Um, it's funny you ask that because I think now, you know, at the point I am in terms of the maturation of my mindset, um, I'm now in a position where, you know, I can talk about these things with a with a a more in-depth understanding of the type of obligation that I have to a greater good. So although ideally, you know, for me to be, you know, for me to be uncomfortable is 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 a requirement because in order for me to advocate and get this message to the masses and be able to you know potentially help other people get a better understanding of exactly what it means to survive recidivism it's going to force me to to have to relive these situations whether it's through conversation or whether it's just through actually continuing to go through the process because again I, I go through the same thing everybody else go through I got a degree I got connects I got networks I got um you know references I have you know I have all of those I have work experience I have certifications but essentially I'm still a convicted felon in the eyes of of, of mainstream society so I still have to go through the same thing that somebody who just came home has to go through. And with that understanding, I know that I have to continue to put myself in these uncomfortable conversations. I mean, even having these conversations out loud could could generate, you know, backlash from from people that choose to work with me. What what could life. happen from uh I mean, I mean, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes we 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 don't. We are in a culture now, especially in the age of social media, where um, we have almost been programmed to uh, to to voice and to validate our successes, but not to discuss our struggles. So people get this idea that when they see you winning per se that you always winning right and that becomes the normal narrative so then when you have somebody come out and say like if I go to a conference or a meeting or 
with other professionals, quote, unquote, uh, or, you know, other people who may or may not be aware of my background um, and only can take me on face value of what I have to offer in that in, in that particular setting. And then once I open up and tell them, hey, well, you know, I'm, I'm a convicted felon. You know, I had conversations not too long ago where people were telling me about some positions that that were open um, in regards to helping youth, and uh, you know, one of the things that I that I wanted to myself and I and I asked was like, are these positions felon friendly? Um, because yeah. who better to work with the youth than the people that reflect that um, experience? Yeah. Um, but you know, there was. There was a little bit of uncertainty. I just, I think, based off of how administration, HR policies, things of that nature. But um, so I never. So you have to kind of always walk this line, like recognize part of the world is going to see you through a certain lens. Right. And then you still have to have the inner kind of Jameer spark. It's, that knows how it's part passion and part politics. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, and so how do you keep? Because it seems like, as every human does. I mean, you know, every part of being human is suffering and hitting brick walls and coming up against obstacles, and and part of being human is getting past those obstacles and learning the lessons to get over them or around them or through them somehow. And so you have these seven steps. Right. to remaining resilient. What are they? Can you just kind of name them off the top of your head? I definitely can. So the seven steps um, is um, broken down into an acronym for the word mindset. So the first step um, would be motivation. The second step would be introspection. The third step would be niche. Um, the fourth step would be development. Um, the fifth step would be a uh, strategy. The sixth step would be entrepreneurship. And the seventh step and probably the most important step is uh, is technique. So it's the, the actual um, way you put together all the other steps to create a structured and systemized process for you to be successful, secure, sustainable, and to generate um, what some term as social mobility. And so can you give us an example of how hitting a wall, let's say, um, because you were a really public example of this is through no fault of your own, you were program manager of hometown hires and vertex rail was coming to town and <laughs> they were going to build these very uh, specialized right. rail cars and without getting into too many details about that i mean the that'll, governor that'll governor that'll be in my book my <laughs> okay. other book my life story book and just yeah this was this was a huge deal for the state of north carolina state. not just the local economy Absolutely. because i think uh the governor showed up to town to um, shake hands and talk <laughs> about all the millions of dollars that were going to be pumped into yeah. the economy, and it, it all fell apart. It did. Um, and so that was a that was a, a a wall for you. You hit a wall. You thought you were on this track, and you were yeah. going to be helping people 
to get jobs? Well, well, I'd I like the preference that with it was more of a more of a setback in the sense of my 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 belief and sense of optimism in the formalized system of community service, right? Because um, I think there's a lot to be said about that situation that hasn't be said hasn't been said. There's a lot that I've chosen not to speak on about the situation. Um, but what I think people don't have um, an understanding of is the fact that if you take Vertex out of the equation and just look at the program itself, um, we helped a lot of people get jobs prior to Vertex coming into the equation. Obviously, Vertex became the big ticket, the big story that everybody got engulfed by. If you look at... So is that a lesson in itself? Not to get too caught up in the shiny thing. Well, I think for me coming into it, I I I had a lot of reservation about the likelihood of them doing what they were proposing or what they were saying they were going to do. But at the same time, as somebody who is a quote unquote community leader and somebody who is responsible for cultivating opportunities. I almost had to allow myself to be a little bit optimistic about it because I figured there's so much money invested and involved that is, in my mind is very unlikely for this project to go south because you got a lot of people that's invested in this who are not just grassroots community leaders. This is there like was international said, investment. International investment, millions and billions of dollars. I, you know, ultimately when I decided to transition over to work at Vertex um, with reservation, but the reason being is that United Way does not facilitate programming, right? So, and so this was new for everybody, but um, I went over there because we had already had a commitment that's documented from the CEOs. Um, and after uh, the construction of the building came into play, you know, we had certain people that uh, were supposed to be going over there, and some of those people did go over there, but not in the roles that we anticipated, right? So um, there were some people that got hired. It wasn't as many people as we were hoping, um, but ultimately everybody that got hired there ended up getting laid off or fired. So that had more to do with what was going on with them than it did with what was going on with the program. It just got overshadowed by the fact that these commitments were out there and that there was a lot of people, like most initiatives, wanted to see it fail and some wanted to see it succeed. And so it then, you know, you moved a couple of different places. You were in Charlotte for a little while. You did some storm recovery work in South yeah. Carolina. I went on what I call a, a spiritual professional pilgrimage. Yeah, because I, I, really, I was really disgusted and very disappointed about the nature of community politics um, at that particular time. And I came into it with all of this compassion and, you know, all of this belief that, you know, we could all collaborate you know, make a big difference, make a change. And then throughout the process, I started noticing, 
you know, the agendas and the intentions of people that wasn't genuine. And I knew mine was. And then you had people who wanted to change and flip the narrative for whatever the agenda was. So for me, it was like, okay, let's reset. You know, I got an opportunity because I chose to leave Vertex. I, I left Vertex over what was seen as the most simplest situation. They were supposed to designate a bunch of bags. I'm in there doing um, presentations to make $15 million investments from the Chinese. And I asked them to donate some bags to Big B's um, Youth uh, Summit. And they were supposed to do that. And then they didn't do it. And when they didn't do it, that was the day that I decided that I could no longer be affiliated with this situation. And I decided to leave and I took another job in Charlotte um, working for Dream Builders Communications. Yeah. And you, and so you did go on this odyssey. You even wound up in Iowa and learned <laughs> um, a number of disturbing things there, including that tornado sirens are terrifying oh and God, nobody terrible. wants to have to run into the ground to save them. Yeah. But so you came back here. Homeless. Homeless. I left my position in Iowa um, because I went, I was all, I had been traumatized by community politics. Right. And I go out there with same good intentions. And then I get out there and start seeing that some of the same things that I saw exist before was present out here to populations totally different from a cultural standpoint, but similar situations. So I said, OK, I called one of my friends who lived in Charlotte and told him, hey, I'm, I'm man, I'm about to leave. So um I wasn't convinced then, but then the tornado convinced me and gave me a sign that I need to come back because we's a tropical people. We we not used to. Uh, Your wife tornado. said, "Are you ready to go yeah, back she to said, North Are you Carolina?" Ready to go back, I said, "Absolutely." So um, we ended up coming back, and just so happened when we got back, we got displaced by the hurricane Florence. Florence in 2018. So now me, my mother. My wife, because I came back to live, you know, with my mother until we got situated. And now all of us are displaced, and I had to go live um, with a couple of people that I knew, and I'm moving around, like, from house to house to house, even to the point where, you know, I, I know I was, God was calling me. I was I got to get back to Wilmington. I got to get my mom back to Wilmington. So um, once she was finally able to come back, I came back to Wilmington and took a job at Dunkin' Donuts, right? Mm -hmm. Understand the that humility involved yeah, right. in yeah. that. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And we, I was afraid this was going to happen. We have about a minute okay. left. So you're now at Coastal Horizons yes, working in reentry and recovery. And what is your why? Because the seven... Yeah. yeah. Steps to resilience. So the why, that's simple. My why is my mother, it's my wife, it's my kids, and it's my community. That is why I do what I do. That is why I get up every day. That is why I remain resilient so that I can do everything to contribute especially to my family as far as my mother and my mom and my kids because there was a time in my life where I didn't prioritize them. And there was other times, you know, whether it was the streets or whether it was other times in my life professionally that I didn't prioritize them because all of that newfound success for somebody that overcame so much 
was hard for me to emotionally manage. And I was so driven by trying to be successful that sometimes I put them on the back burner. And I didn't realize that until, you know, until the damage was already done. So having your why is what, in the book we state, keeps you motivated. And it's what allows you to sustain the momentum that you get from the time you lock into the process to the time you get it right. And we'll look for that book when it comes out. Absolutely. That is this edition of Coastline. Jameer Demoke, thank you so much for thank sharing you. your experiences. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Fresnel engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Find us on Facebook at WHQR's Coastline, hosted by, and find the episode at whqr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Thank you.